Hello, I'm Angelina Pratt, your host of Empathetic Witness. Today we have on the show, Michelle Meyer, naturopathic doctor. Good morning, Michelle. Can I get you to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do for a living, and then we'll get into my questions. My name is Michelle Meyer. I also am known as Miriam Michelle. Um, I've chosen to use my Hebrew name um, to honor my Jewish roots and the fact that I am now an initiate as a Hebrew priestess, a Kohenet. I am a proud mother, which is the hat that I have glued onto my head. And on top of that hat, I have the hats of being a doctor in naturopathic medicine, an ND, licensed here in Ontario. And I'm also a psychotherapist, although I have not received my license in psychotherapy uh, since the change in regulation. So I am officially known as a psychological counselor, or, you know, I do somatic um, or body-centered emotional release counseling as about 50% of my practice with my clients slash patients. And I've been doing that for over 35 years. Wow, that's that's a long experience, right? Because I'm sure trends and um trends have changed over the last 30 years in terms of even just the acceptance of naturopathic doctors. Now yes. when I talk to people about you know seeing a naturopathic doctor, I don't need to explain what that means. But for purposes of this podcast, can you explain what a naturopathic doctor is and how it differs from a medical doctor? How it differs from a conventional medical doctor because yes. we are medically trained. Right. And okay. Perfect. That I really keep emphasizing, even with my colleagues who have bought into the, the use of the term naturopath. I never refer to myself as a naturopath, nor my colleagues. We are naturopathic doctors. That is, we are medically trained and we are focused on the use of natural therapies and approaches including nutritional supplements and more sophisticated nutraceuticals. So what what's the difference between conventional and naturopathic medicine? Well, the foundational piece is that we go back to the traditional ways of treating, which is the, the ways of maintaining, promoting, and reclaiming or rebalancing health. So the focus is not on sickness and symptoms. The focus is on well-being. And how does that look? Well, the important piece and one of the founding principles of naturopathic medicine is that the body is self-healing. So for anyone who's questioning that or saying, how do you really know that? 
Um, just look at what happens when we cut ourselves or we break a bone, right? Um, or we get a bruise. The body just doesn't, we don't get left with that bruise or that cut or that broken bone for the rest of our lives. Our body triggers mechanisms for healing the damage. And that is one of the most important things I share with everybody. Our bodies are self-healing. And the key is to remove any obstacles, any barriers that would inhibit the body's ability to rebalance itself, to reclaim its full health. So the question is then, why do people end up being so sick? And that is then what we acknowledge as a process of becoming unbalanced and not getting back to full balance over and over again, which then impacts on a cellular organ and system basis the efficacy or the the function of our bodies, which, if you want, is an aging process. So part of the principles of naturopathic medicine, one of the very important ones, is to educate our patients, because that is how we can support people to be empowered, and we need to be internally powerful and internally self-aware in order to support our bodies to stay well and to reclaim wellness or health. And when we're not aware of how our bodies work and what we may be doing to damage them or to inhibit them from maintaining dynamic equilibrium, then we are naive or ignorant and hurting ourselves unbeknownst to ourselves and then going for quick fix solutions, which can in fact exacerbate the problems and inhibit further the body's ability to rebalance itself. So so that's the second principle. So we recognize the body is self-healing. We acknowledge that we need to educate our patients so that they can be empowered and thereby fully engaged in the process of claiming and reclaiming their or our health. Um, a third principle is to recognize that everybody is unique. So while I can say to you, Angelina, and use myself and apply to three other patients the herb echinacea or the herb astragalus or the mushroom remedy reishi and say, or reishi and say, these, you know, these herbs are good for immune enhancement. One person might be very sensitive to grasses and not have a good response to echinacea. One person might need just to have echinacea because they may have fungal and, um, viral undertones more so than bacterial. And one person might need to combine echinacea or astragalus with golden seal, which is a strong natural antibiotic. So in other words, what we need to do is see each person as unique and come to understand and connect with them well. Um, So we never reduce a person to their symptoms, nor do we reduce anybody to a pathology. You know, so, you know, often we hear in conventional medicine, they refer to case such and such and this person, you know, the person who's got schizophrenia and the person who's got 
um, I'm just trying to think arthritis and stuff like that. You know, for me, having worked, you know, more than 35 years, um, I've never referred to anybody by their illness. You know, I think that's quite derogatory. It's, it, you know, we need to embrace people for who they are. And we need to recognize that we're all able with the right supports to, to allow ourselves to get back to wellness. And for me, wellness is not just the physical. The physical is a manifestation of our emotional, spiritual, and mental well-being. And, and so in my practice, I also share with people the importance of maintaining community, honoring cultural practices, working through family dynamics, um, going back and opening into, in healthy ways, our trauma stories to release them. And that's where I use my body-centered uh, or somatic techniques for moving energy. Because we do know that when energy is not flowing in our bodies, our bodies cannot stay well. It's kind of like putting a tourniquet on our arm. The you know the rest of our arm is going to end up dying. And that is what we do quite unconsciously on an energetic level on and on repeatedly and chronically when we feel certain emotions and we don't allow them to be expressed. And unfortunately, our society has has evolved, or maybe we want to say at this point devolved, into a, um, a setting where we are discouraged from expressing a lot of our emotions. For example, our sadness or our fear, in particular, our fear, or our pain. And, you know, it's, we are, we, the masculine is more revered because we are in a more patriarchal society at this stage where we were a matriarchal society thousands of years ago. And the masculine is more at the fighting, the fighter. Um, and the hiding of vulnerability and emotional distresses that might quote impede knocking out the enemy and unfortunately again we live in a society where there is a lot of them and us where where we perceive ourselves as in a survival battle be it to get a job to keep a job to please a, a boss to keep our kids going to achieve certain successes defined in societal terms um to pay the bills. Um, and we're often very isolated in, in these struggles and that makes it really difficult. So I don't know if that helps to, to shape how, at least like my practices and how I've embraced being a naturopathic doctor, what we are not doing is we're not using conventional pharmaceutical drugs. We're not allowed to legally and we don't need to. So, for example, someone says, well, how can you manage without antibiotics? I can say there are plenty of herbal antibiotics in this world, and they don't do the same damage to our microbiome, which is those trillions of, of germs, that is bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites that we need in our gut. It helps us to rebalance. And so that's, again, the approach that the herbs and all the approaches we use catalyze healing on many levels. Right. Well, thank you so much. That clarifies, you know, right at the beginning, what we're talking about. And, you know, when you talk about herbs and medicines, plant medicines, 
you know, as you know, I'm I'm Dene Susene. I'm Dene from Northern uh, Saskatchewan, Northern Alberta. In our household, we always had spruce gum. Yes. And spruce gum, my mom would apply it if we got a bee sting, we've got or if we've gotten some kind of rash or infection on the skin, a burn, she would just lather us. Well, I mean the spruce gum, if anybody knows what spruce gum is, it's pretty it's a resin and it's pretty hard. And what yes, we what my mom would do is she would boil it and make it into a liquid. And then that liquid then can be applied to the surface of the skin. So absolutely, I believe in plant medicine because... You're blessed to have indigenous <laughs> roots. Believe me, you are blessed. Yes. And you can even drink the sap like yes. it because it'll give you the runs if you're not careful. In fact, I have I have that very story. When we were up in the Yukon, I decided, oh, what the heck, I'm going to just try some of this sap. I grabbed a big chunk of sap off a of spruce tree and chewed it. And the next day, let me tell you, I was on the toilet longer than I wanted to be. <laughs> I felt great <laughs> two days later, let me tell you. <laughs> You know, and that's that's another that you know it's sort of interesting. You know, I'm wandering a little bit, but I think it's fun to 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 share certain things. Often, what in conventional medicine is seen as deleterious, bad symptoms that you have to stop. For example, diarrhea hmm. or vomiting or even seizures. What those things are, are actually the body's healing responses to try to prevent infection. And and foreign foreign bodies from taking over and destroying the body. Wow. So a seizure is actually a localized fever in the brain, which is basically trying to keep all the toxicity from building up in the brain. Um, a fever in general is a way for the body to kill off bacteria and and viruses. Um, what was the other thing I mentioned? I was going to. There was something else that was. Um, See, diarrhea. Diarrhea yeah. is the body's way of purging. Now, if you have chronic diarrhea, obviously you're going to be, you're, you're going to, you're going to have to do something about it. But the point being that that is a sign of parasites and things that must be addressed. And how do we address them? Well, one way we address them is by using natural antiparasitics, which can include like the husks of black walnut and cloves and artemisia, which is also known as wormwood. But we also need to realize that there's a reason why those parasites are getting in and staying in the belly. And that has to do with stomach weakness. And you can't imagine the numbers of people in our world. I would speculate that well over 50% of the population by the time they're 35 or 40 have deficient betaine hydrochloric acid, which is the foundational acid in the stomach required to break down proteins. Most of you know that there's a lot of acid in the stomach. Probably if you've ever had heartburn, you think I've got too much of that. I need to settle it down. Quite the opposite. And this is one of the tragedies of conventional medicine. It inappropriately treats this symptom. So when we haven't got enough acid in our stomach, we create fermentation, which means gas. And what happens over time is that gas builds up in the belly, in the, in the belly, in the stomach, and starts to push on the one-way valve that prevents that acid from coming into our esophagus, our feeding tube. That, that's where we swallow down into the stomach. And lo and behold, we get 
acid reflux or, you know, you know, gastro and, you know, esophageal reflux, whatever you want to call it, GERD. And, and what we do need to do, in fact, is to add more hydrochloric acid so that the, the stomach will digest better and not create fermentation. The other thing we need to learn about, which is super important, is how to eat well. And this is something that even some of my colleagues have not been fully educated on. We, it's not just what we eat, it's how we eat. So we need to eat naturally grown foods. We need to eat foods that are not having a lot of highly toxic pesticides put on them. Why are those pesticides on them? Because the food or the plant itself isn't strong enough to ward off pests. We need to have foods that are grown on healthy soil because that's the food for the plant. We need to steam those vegetables or and, and cook that food in a way that preserves the nutrient. Nutrients. So, for example, you throw your vegetables in a big pot of water, you cook them up, you take the vegetables out, you throw the water away, you've lost (laughs) so much of the nutrition. We need to eat more simply because our bodies weren't meant to eat 10, 15, 20 different things at once. Just think back to our ancestors of 10, 20, and 30,000 years ago. Our genetics haven't changed that much. If you eat more of a few things, you're going to digest them much better. And we need to not combine different kinds of foods. For example, the typical North American, even British and European meal is to mix a carbohydrate and a protein and then throw in some vegetables and then afterwards eat a dessert. And that overwhelms the digestion. First of all, one of the things that's really important to know is that carbohydrates and proteins don't digest in the same medium. Carbohydrates are not are not digested in the stomach. They're digested in the small intestine using enzymes from the pancreas. So please honor your pancreas because many of us don't realize how important it is, as well as support from the liver. And the proteins need first to be broken down in the stomach, and then they're further broken down by by proteases or enzymes from the pancreas. And so there's different digestion times in the stomach. You add sugar to that and you create chaos for your body. Sugar is not at all digested in the stomach. And when the stomach receives sugar, that's a signal for it to empty. That's why when you ate a cookie before dinner, you didn't feel hungry because you have a little button at the bottom of your stomach that when pressed tells you you feel full because you can't tell from just having stuff in your stomach. Your stomach isn't sensitive that way. And so what happens when we eat a dessert at the end of a meal is lo and behold, everything empties out and we have partially digested proteins. We have all kinds of fermentation that takes place. We have a lot more garbage, which is acidic to get rid of. We have less nutrition. And is it surprising that we start to age ourselves by the time we're 35 and 40? Nope, because we haven't been feeding ourselves that as in absorbing appropriately our nutrition. Um, And so I'm going to say one more thing, because this is another one of my pet topics, and that is pH, which means the amount of acidity or alkalinity base versus acid. Many of you probably heard this concept. It is absolutely paramount for your body to have the right pH in every part of the body. And the reason for that is because that medium then allows important friendly microbes to stay vibrant and unfriendly microbes, that is viruses, bacteria, parasites, fungi, to not be able to thrive. 
And what typically happens by the time we're 25 and 30 is that our pH is off in our digestive tract and our saliva, therefore, and you can see it through the urine. And that starts to affect the entire digestive system of which we have miles. Why do I say that? Because we have, by the time we're adults, you know, close to 32 feet of the actual intestinal tract that is wound around and coiled up inside us. But each little centimeter of that has got, you know, millions and millions of these little microvilli, so these little, little, little hair-like bumps that help absorb nutrients and they get damaged. They get damaged by eating poorly and poor food combining and that over acidification. And so we, we, are harming ourselves and then limiting our ability to absorb and causing ourselves more and more grief, which over time then leads to this spiral effect of aging. And it has nothing to do with what age we are. It has to do with how well we are caring for ourselves. Well, that is a perfect segue into talking about, I would like to talk to you about fasting. And what your thoughts are on fasting? Um, and I think the question. Yeah. yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So if you look back to biblical times, and I say biblical, we can use any form of Bible or whatever. Um, okay, that, let me reframe that. We all have scriptures or we all have texts that we honor from a spiritual standpoint. And often you hear referencing to to fasting for spiritual reasons. You have Ramadan in in the Jewish tradition. You have Yom Kippur and a few other fast days. You know, there's fasting around Lent, I believe, in the Christian practices. And and same for the Hindus and all all different different religious um, observances. So fasting is something that can be very supportive to the body because it's like sleep. We need our sleep because our bodies need time to recover from the damage and the imbalances set up during our day. What are we doing during the the days? We're focused outwardly. We're responding to the outer world. What do we do at night when we're sleeping? We are responding to and ameliorating, repairing, and, and reclaiming our inner world you know, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. And fasting, what it does is during our waking hours, allow us to take a break from digestion, which is what we do at night. And that's why breakfast means break fast, right? And so what Often that what what is much more commonly discussed at this point in time, which is something that I I think is a very healthy habit, is what we call intermittent fasting, which is basically encouraging people to take a break of about 14 hours. Sometimes people advocate up to 16 hours from the, the last meal of the day to the first meal of the following day. So if you, for example, eat your supper at six o'clock. And then you eat your breakfast at eight o'clock the next morning, you will have fasted, meaning you will not have eaten for 14 hours, which is a good thing because it gives your body the chance to clean. When we are digesting, our body is still in 
it's in parasympathetic nervous system function, but it's not able to do the deeper cleaning work and repair work that is necessary to keep us from aging too rapidly. And so then there, then there's the other aspect of fasting, which is, okay, can I fast for a day? Can I fast for two days? Can I, you know, how does that look? Well, when I was in my mid twenties, I, I used to fast for longer periods of time. How did I do that? Well, I, first of all, did the research and I made sure that I was prepared. And when you want to fast for a longer period of time, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to binge eat. I'm going to have that last pizza and I'm going to have my donuts and I'm going to make sure, you know, eat as much as I can and then charge in there. That is the, that is the most unhealthy and more, most dangerous way to go into a fast. What we want to do, like anything, we want to ease into something that is more extreme, which fasting for a longer period of time is more extreme than fasting for 14 hours. So we gradually reduce the amount of more engaged digestion. So the most engaged digestion is around proteins and fats and then carbohydrates and and then vegetables and least fruit. So when we want to prepare for a longer fast, we start by maybe three days before, um, could be longer, but say at least three days before we we eliminate our heavy duty proteins and and our heavy duty fats, and then we eliminate our carbohydrates the day after. And then, you know, the last couple of days we can be just eating broths. Um, and vegetables and some fruit. And then we ease into the fast. I would say that, that, like, strictly speaking, a fast is nothing but water or no water, even. I do not condone water free fasting. Um, I, I know in Yom Kippur that they do that, but as a habit, I would not support that particularly if you're trying to maintain your normal lifestyle. If you're going to go into a spiritual space and a quiet retreat, you might choose to do that for a day. But water is very important and healthy water, of course, which means filtered because of the chlorine and the fluoride and all the other chemicals in our water supply. Um, But so let's assume that water is part of a fast. But what I would suggest to most people is that the, the, the most healthy way to gain benefit from a fasting type regime is to have some, perhaps some vegetable juices or some vegetable broths um, and not have to break down foods. Um, And I would add one more thing um, to make sure that before you do any of that kind of fasting, that you have enough fiber in your diet so that your intestinal tract is not going to go into heavy duty spasm. So fasting, I would say of the, purest kind is not for the feign of health. So you really need to have been on a good diet for some time and cleaned out a good chunk of toxicity before you engage in the more significant fasting. Otherwise, what you'll do is put yourself in a healing crisis. And that is not something that you need to, you want or need to do. It's not a good thing, you know, and it can be quite distressing and you can be quite, you can have a lot of symptoms of illness, um, including spastic colon, including vomiting, diarrhea, um, you know, fever, they just general um, debility. So uh, I would say the intermittent fasting is the best way to go about 
giving our bodies a rest from digestion and anything else, if it's contemplated, you know, a couple of days, two, three days with vegetable juices and, and broths and so on and so forth. To be honest, even just eating just steamed or cooked vegetables and lots of liquids, even just like bone broth and vegetables or vegetable juices or vegetable broths can be a very good break for the body and can really allow it to do a lot of healing without putting it into massive distress. It is something, there's a cautionary note. The other, the other last piece about this is that it is as important how you leave a fast as how you enter a fast. If you suddenly go, oh, I've done my fast and I'm going to eat my pizza. You're, it's kind of like your body has speeded up its it's cleansing and repairing functions. And that's where it's focused. And if you end up suddenly throwing big, heavy food in, it is, it's going to be like a car accident. You're going to have been going speeding down the highway and suddenly you slam on the brakes and then crash. So it, the same that I said to start a fast is the way you come out of a fast gently with vegetables and fruits. And, you know, two days later, your carbs and your, and your proteins. So you really have to be smart about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I did a fast a few years ago, a juice fast. So I was juicing a lot at that time and I was just drinking a lot of juice. And then when I broke my fast, it was watermelon season. So I got a big watermelon and nice. cut it up into nice cubes. And it was the most delicious thing I could have ever eaten because, as you know, watermelon is largely water, but it had that nice, sweet taste to it. And it actually made me feel lighter and really good and happy actually to come out of a fast. Great choice. One thing that people will notice is as you eat more healthfully and you remove sugar, which is, let me tell you, it's the the most dominant drug in our world. (laughs) Your taste buds are going to shift and you're going to taste the sweetness of vegetables and you're going to find fruits very sweet. So it's, it's such a gift we give ourselves when we eat more simply and chew our food and celebrate what we're eating. Um, and and the truth is that the vast majority of us are overeating. Huh. Those who have food available, we're eating with poor food choices and we are consuming too much. Some of that has to do, especially for those who are on limited budgets, with eating not nutritious enough food. So there's what we call compensatory eating to try to get more nutrients when they're not there. And some of it is just genuinely bad habits from childhood where we don't know what it means to eat till we are not hungry. (laughs) And we often associate growling stomachs, which is actually a cleansing detoxification response on the part of the of the stomach to get rid of gas with hunger, which it is not. So there are very, very few people in the Western industrialized developed world who really know the feeling of genuine hunger. And we are perpetually eating, I would say 50% to 100% more than we need at any given meal, which means our bodies are overworking in terms of 
digesting and eliminating the excess. And we age ourselves more rapidly. So eating simply and eating smaller amounts and trying to focus on eating till I don't feel hungry, which is a whole education in itself. Uh-huh. Let me tell you, having fasted, I, I, you know, I was going to just tell you, Angelina, that one time I fasted for three weeks and I was oh doing Yes. Well, let me tell you, it ended disastrously because I wasn't expecting to fast for three weeks, but I was feeling so good Mm. that I just kept on going and my body was so happy. And then it was Thanksgiving. Yikes. (laughs) And we had friends over for dinner and I'm like, I'm just going to eat grapes. It'll all be fine until the crepes flambe showed up. And suddenly the little girl in me said, I got to have one of those. And it I speak from firsthand experience. If you don't break a fast well and you don't have the discipline to break a fast well, don't fast for any extended period of time because uh, I was in agony for days after that. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine your body was not, oh. I mean, three weeks. I can't even imagine doing it for three weeks. Yeah. Like, three weeks is a long time to fast at for you know, like I cannot imagine anybody doing that, you know, voluntarily to do it. It's interesting. It's interesting. Some of us, like I, I have a body that's, that's cut out for fasting. My father fasted his whole adult life one day a week, meaning mm-hmm. he would Sunday evening eat supper at six and not eat again till six o'clock or five o'clock the following month, like Monday evening. He did that quote religiously all his life. And he was an incredibly healthy man, incredibly healthy. The only reason he ever got sick was because he decided to use chemotherapy prophylactically. In other words, he had these little bumps on his skin that had a 10% chance of becoming a fairly innocuous skin cancer. And he decided to do an experiment and he slathered himself full of chemicals and gave himself cancer. It was very sad. Yeah. Well, that's not too good. Well, let's, let's, continue to switch into more healthy topics. (laughs) Well, one of the things I remember from my childhood is that, you know, because we, well, we lived in, you know, Northern Alberta. My father was a trapper, so we had good food, you know, um, wild meat and wild fish. Um, And well, I was also in residential school. So we would go home on the weekend, um, like on Sunday. But my mom, when she'd send us back after, we'd go home for a few hours on Sunday, and then we'd have to go back to the mission for dinner. And she'd always give us, I remember oranges or apples, like she'd give us fruit. And I'd get back to the mission. Some of the, most of the kids would come back with candies chocolate. And I had a friend, she had chocolate and she had these chocolates. I think they're called rosebuds, but it was yes. a chocolate inside. It was a little cherry. And I yes. love that. So I would say to her, I really like that chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do a trade? <laughs> yeah. She said, if you would say uh, a Cree word, I'll give you some. So she was teaching me Cree and I would have um, some of that chocolate and you know and that was really good but it it kind of just reminds me like when you 
when you don't have a lot of money, I guess your choices for food and comfort is different. And so for my mom, though, and my parents, it was fruit. Fruit fruit were something that was like candy for us at home. So we would have oranges and apples. And of course, we had a large family, so we purchased that in big amounts, cases, that type of thing. So, yeah. Well, that's so good. You know, I really appreciate your sharing. And, you know, it really and honestly breaks my heart. Having had my former husband who worked uh, um, with the Crees in Quebec and and having had an Indigenous partner and living on Six Nations, in the Six Nations community down Southwest Ontario, and having worked with my first husband in Northwest Ontario with the Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe um, Uji Cree um, in wild rice production, I can tell you, it has definitely been part of what I call the genocide of Indigenous people that that the colonial influence on food and, and eating habits has pervaded and persisted. And it is frightening so that you see the stores um, in the communities um, filled with like nutritionless white bread uh. and 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 peanut butter filled with icing sugar, which, you know, even peanuts aren't the aren't, aren't that healthy for you. You have to be very careful with peanuts. Um, and just like knowing that, for example, indigenous people are people who are, whose genes are, are needing and their, their, your diet is based on meat Mm. and animal products, like they, and raw Mm. fats and, and, you know, and, and fish and, and some wild rice, which has just about like 95% of wild rice has disappeared across North America. There were millions and millions of acres of wild rice, mm. which is, you know, an incredible, it's a grass, grass grain, if you want, but just so nutritious and it's gone. Yeah. It costs a fortune mm. to buy some wild rice. Um and and of course, you know, you you were you know hunters and gatherers, and then berries were the other piece. So I mean, it's even interesting because when you think about it, like okay, so you had the Haudenosaunee um, settling some and growing corn. So there was corn. There was some beans, which are like the legumes, and you had squash. But you didn't have all the variety of vegetables that we now import from here, there, and everywhere. Um, and you had fungi, 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 like what do you mean, however you say that, mushrooms, which are good medicine, right? So, you know, if you if we really want to live the way we ought to on the land we live on, then we need to eat what we find here. So bananas, I mean, orange is a treat, sure, but we don't need to eat oranges. We don't need to eat bananas. We don't need to even eat pineapples or anything like that. Sure, as a treat once in a while, absolutely. I mean, folks a few thousand years ago did trades too. Um, so it's not like it's a, a terrible thing. But as a, as a regular habit, we need to eat foods that come from our bioregion. And that includes for, in fruit, berries, like blueberries and raspberries and cranberries um, and strawberries. Um, and some cherries in some parts, right? 
and apples and pears, maybe a little further south, peaches, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But we don't need to eat things that are having to be imported from halfway around the world. I mean, it's just not good for our environment. It's not good for us. Mm. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. Um, And we have so much that we can enjoy here. And I think very many people have not done nearly as much exploring of, for example, the different kinds of beans that we can grow here easily, like, you know, chickpeas and um, uh, the adzuki beans and the various things. So there's a lot of possibility for eating well without buying imported foods that have been sprayed and and have lost a lot of their nutrients, by the way. So the oranges that you get in the grocery store, they may have been sitting for six weeks. I can tell you, you won't find much vitamin C in that orange because it's all gone by way of being exposed to air. So I remember once we were driving to the States and uh, we we were driving by orchard, orange orchard. And Alan says, I want to, I want to grab one of those oranges, you know, and he was going to get out of the car and run out and grab an orange off a tree. And I said, no, you can't just go on somebody's property and grab an orange. I know it's very small, but still, you're a lawyer. You should be (laughs) (laughs) not run into private property and grab what's there because you're not allowed to. You know, what you're sharing is true and unfortunate, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if we really want to go to the real, real, real roots of our distress, dis-ease, and and lack of maintaining good health. Yeah. It's all about private ownership yeah. and, 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 and grabbing and owning the land. Like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We share a planet. We need to take care of our planet. We yeah. need to take care of Mother Earth. That is the indigenous way. What the hell did we do? Like, really? Like, what is this? Don't come on my property. No trespassing. Don't touch my fruit tree. Don't take my things. Like, this is not the way of our future. We want to survive as a species. We will not be around. We will not be around. I don't believe in a thousand years from now, if we keep going down the path we're going right now, like, when we have 1% of the world's human population controlling probably 80% of the resources and probably 95% of the decision-making um, and and so many others serving them um, and not having adequate food, shelter, water, clothing, community, safety, security, well, yeah, you're venturing into, you know, colonialism. And, exactly. You know, and I live at, well, I'm from, as I said earlier, from Alberta, northern Saskatchewan. And in Alberta, that's where you have the oil sands. And just a couple weeks ago, there was a huge spill from the tailing ponds in, in northern Alberta. But the, my well, family and the people that live in and around Fort McMurray are exposed to that toxin. You know, it runs in the water, it runs underground. And, you know, we are always in conflict with, with, um, with 
industry because there has to be a balance. A lot of the people in the Fort McMurray area earn their living with industry. So how do you have a balance where you have to work in that industry? Good and, question. And you're you're contributing to the degradation yeah. of well, the you don't get plants. you don't get stuck. Sorry, I'm interrupting. But you don't get stuck in the paradigm. Yeah, it's and so like if you get stuck in the conventional medical paradigm, you're screwed. We will not have a viable. It, it's now a sick care system, like a real and viable healthcare system if we don't change the paradigm yeah, yeah. And, the, and the approach that we have in healthcare. Yeah. And the same is true for industry around energy. It can't be, well, how are we going to balance between this industry, which is fracking and, you know, and feeding your oil. family. Right. Right. We can't, we can't keep going that way. The yeah. point is what people don't realize is that, is that governments support these industries and governments can make other decisions. And we as people can make other decisions and shift the paradigm and shift to cleaner, yeah. greener yeah. energy technology. Yeah. There's nothing stopping us. What's stopping us then? Why are we, why are we not doing it? Because we allow that 1% of the population who are, and this is my way of seeing it, addicted to controlling the entire planet. And we are all codependent on them. Yeah. Well, we are allowing that small group of highly addicted, if you want, psychopathic, sociopathic, borderline, um, narcissistic, whatever psychological label you want to put on these people, because that's what they are. Yeah. Who are completely disconnected from their inner compassion and sensitivity. And it's been documented in research. Their brains have stopped functioning from a place of compassion. We are allowing them to continue instead of going, whoa, yeah. this and, won't happen anymore. This and not, not all of us. I mean, you know, there, I have a friend who is a medical doctor in Alberta and he was fighting with the medical association saying that right. these toxins are impacting my patients in that area. And this is what right. I'm seeing. And right. he kept talking about it and his license was suspended because of it. Yeah. So but that didn't been... stop him from talking about it. You know, so there are people that have, that see the problem and are strong enough and, Brave well, enough to, to make the sacrifice. Something. We yeah. see he's an example. He's an extraordinary example because yes. not many people are willing to sacrifice their career, their work, their income yeah. for the sake of standing up for what they believe in. And yeah. we need more people like this amazing friend of yours. Yeah. We and it, need it really is important up. because you end up like he, you know, there were other medical doctors that that he lost as friends because of the position he was taking and the alarms he was ringing. So yeah. I have total and complete, you know, respect for this doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, there are people in developing countries who sacrifice their lives. Yeah. Fighting for their basic rights, yeah. like fighting for a decent wage, fighting to stop minds from killing, killing their family members, 
fighting for, you know, for farm workers to not be exposed to pesticides. We all need to be doing some of this. I, I find it easier because my parents were Holocaust survivors and they knew what sacrifice looked like. They were from reasonably affluent middle class uh-huh. and professional homes and they lost everything yeah. when they ran as refugees. They went from well off to nothing in poverty. And so they raised us to, to you know, with the perspective, look, you do sacrifice. You do sacrifice for your family when needed and for others where needed. And you keep a perspective and you don't just hoard and keep things for yourself. You distribute and you make sure everyone has enough. But uh, And I am just shocked at the insular, what do you call it? Insularity? Is there such a word? Um, people's insular ways of responding and hiding and look, no one, you can't take it. And, and you know, we saw this with the pandemic, with the terrible lockdown, which we won't even go into discussing. No, it's not, it's a totally but different taking piles of, of toilet paper, like, what are you doing? Do you have no regard for other people? Like, <laughs> it, it was just shocking. It was yeah. shocking to see, and we need to shift. Well, Again, it's the fear. It's the fear, right? You know, it people is the get fear. caught into fear, and they do unreasonable things when they're fearful. That's and- right. Survival, survival leads to people killing other people, yeah. you know? And, and, and that to come back to being a naturopathic doctor and, and practicing one of, you know, what I love about my practice is it is radical. It is getting to the root of the issues in our society. And I present it that way. I tell people every day, you are embracing your power. This flies in the face of a lot of the messaging you receive as you go through school. Uh-huh. As you get into a job and a career, as you as you deal with hierarchical um, organizations, including your workplace, including schools, you know, and and the concept of an ideology of competition being a great thing. When we learn to be powerful in respectful, self-respecting ways, self-nurturing, self-compassionate ways, we're able to be respectful, compassionate, aware of others, sensitive to others, collective, Mm -hmm. collaborative, cooperative, sharing, trusting, caring, all those things that really aren't genuinely and foundationally promoted as values and and actions in our society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, when people come into my practice, I see them as having the possibility of being, quote, and maybe I shouldn't use this word. I better not use that word because it'll be misinterpreted, but becoming more radical, meaning root, <laughs> yes. root, root focused in terms of their own well-being and their own journey to holding, claiming, reclaiming their health and well-being and offering that out to others. And that has been the only, and I mean the only thing I've ever asked in my practice is not pay the bucks. It's take, take, be willing to learn how to take responsibility for your health and well-being, and choose a few people to share this with, because that's our future, right? Our future isn't in me having a million dollars or you having a million dollars or me having a fancy car or you having a fancy car or a fancy house. It is in all of us being well, yeah. And having what we need and some of what we want. 
Yeah. And that's the future. So for me, naturopathic medicine has been a very good avenue for me as someone who was radical from the time I was 18, a way to use my energy in a constructive, positive, proactive, creating kind of fashion, as opposed to just fighting against all that is bad and disease, because that is so exhausting and leads to so much disillusionment and burnout. So we need to be promoting the positive. And that's, that's where I put my energy. Wow, that that's great. And I, and I'm all about that, you know, in my second season of doing the podcast, I decided my first season was looking at addictions, looking at trauma, looking at that. And we need to look at those things. But in my second season, I wanted to make a deliberate change to start talking and interviewing people about hope, about the positiveness that we as human can contribute to the world, what we can leave behind. So that's the the trend that I'm hoping, you know, through this next year to nice. continue to to bring forward in the in the universe, you know, one of the um, philosophies of indigenous people is, and maybe not just indigenous people, Buddhist people as well, is that we are all interconnected. Yes. You know, we as a human race are all interconnected, and so we depend on each other for our. Yes, and Angelina, your indigenous roots would share go beyond that. Yes. And we are nature. We are nature. We are part of a whole. Yes. A living, breathing organism on this planet. Yes. And any disillusioned thinking that we can control other things and make them do what we want them to do. Or people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Is an illusion and will not lead us to be well. You know, it it, it only creates more disease and imbalance and distress and makes things harder and harder and harder. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, one thing that, you know, David Suzuki and others who've been engaged in the environment movement have helped us to realize is that we need to be honoring of all of nature of which we are a part. And we have so much we have and so much more we can learn from the world of nature, which is all around us. Mm. All around us. I don't know how many people know this. And I, again, I, 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 I totally with you on focusing on the positive. But just as an FYI, we now have 300,000 chemical compounds in our world that have been created by humans. And, you know, and the focus on trying to do biotech or create more in- ingenious chemical things or other plastics that might not be so carcinogenic and dot, dot, dot to me is so misguided and that's my polite way of saying it it is so foundationally aired you know it it, to me it just it's mind-boggling to me when I see the money and the focus on better joints to replace joints that aren't working better this to replace that it's like to me it's just so misguided 
What we really need is to be exploring our oceans and to be learning more and more and more from what we have because nature is brilliant and we are brilliant. We are miracles. Our bodies are miracles. We have evolved into being so incredible and we just need to put our energy into appreciating it and understanding it and, and, you know, and embracing it more. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I enjoy doing. You know, I just, I can't get enough of what nature is and how we fit into it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It is. Well, I mean, as you know, I had a partial stroke a few years ago and that led me down a rabbit hole of self-discovery and acknowledgement that our bodies are a healing machine. Like you said earlier, you know, we, with the right conditions, we can heal ourselves. I remember the first yes. time um, I brought Andrew home as a baby after he was born. Um, that first night, I mean, the, my doctor actually gave me his number. <laughs> anyway, the, that night, like three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I was worried about Andrew. You know, there's something happening. It seems to me he was kind of hot, you know, had a fever. So I phoned up, you know, Dr. Fleming and I said, I guess I woke you. He says, yeah, you did. (laughs) But I just want to talk to you about Andrew. He's got a fever. And he said, fevers are normal. Like, you know, if he still has a fever in the morning, not three o'clock in the morning, but when, when you wake up, bring him to the office. But since that time, all through Andrew's childhood, and even now as a young adult, if he has a fever, I don't worry about it. Like I'm not worried about fever, unless it's sustained over longer period. If he's got a high fever, then it's dangerous. Yeah, that's right. It's a sign of the body healing itself and getting rid of things that it doesn't want. It's localized or or generalized inflammation and and believe me most of us are in a state of inflammation these days there's just so much we've been accosted with in 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 toxins and things that throw us off like be grateful it's happening that's all i have to say about it yeah exactly I, i was walking down the street down my little crescent here and we have a few babies and i saw one of the dads and I asked how the little one was. Oh, he's okay. Well, we're just, you know, he's got a bit of a fever. So I'm just going out to get the baby Tylenol. And I literally, and I, you know, talk about lack of emotional self-regulation. I went, no, you can't do that. And he just kind of jumped back. And, then, and I was with my partner. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's just like, like just such an immediate, like, Bang! Response like don't interfere with this child self healing mechanism. Tylenol. Oh my God! It's gonna you know it's hurting his liver and uh, anyhow. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a whole another another podcast for sure. I think we're we're getting close to the hour, Michelle, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I mean, your energy is vibrant and exciting, and I and I thoroughly love love this. just before we end, I want you to go back a little bit. You mentioned a little bit about your family, where you're from, but what propelled you into going into medicine? Well, I think originally, my original motivation was different than when I 
came back because I actually went to naturopathic medical school in my mid thirties. So originally I applied for medical school. I was accepted in, and then I was very radical at the time. I was promoting the revolution, you know, the workers revolution. It was a proud Marxist. Um, and so I rejected all my roots. The bourgeoisie was bad. (laughs) And then what brought me back to it was really my awareness. First of all, that I was, I had been unwell. That's the truth. Uh-huh. So by my mid-20s, I was very burnt out from doing exactly what I said earlier, fighting against a system that wasn't wasn't just uh-huh. um, and exhausting myself and getting physically unwell um, and lacking a certain spiritual base. So that motivated me and propelled me more by chance than anything else into the world of holistic healthcare. And then I realized this was a whole other part of the revolution that I hadn't realized. So being that kind who likes to be radical and who likes to question and mm. change the system, that's how I ended up in, you know, realizing that I could train and become a licensed naturopathic doctor. And I chose to do it because it helped people to have greater access through work uh, extended healthcare plans um, that I was accountable to the public by being licensed wow. and and having professional insurance so that I wouldn't just be a, a fly by night herbalist and and also it allowed me to congregate with others in my profession so that we would have a common collective voice to yeah. speak about natural medicine so that those are all reasons why I got in I mean I got myself healthy which was the start and that's why I'm very I believe in it implicitly because it's worked for me. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that is really good. And the last question I always ask my guests is in thinking about your legacy, what do you think you have given the world? <laughs> I know. People I will, always I take a deep breath when I say that, <laughs> especially, you know, often we don't think about our legacy, you know. And so when I ask the question, I often get the same response that you just did, yeah. you know. That was dramat- dramatized. I yeah, say. yeah, I, I know. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but it is true. You know, we, we are um, animals of this earth and what we do matters. And how we leave yeah. this world matters. And yeah. it's really important to think about, you know, how we give back to the world. Right. How we give and, and, and receive. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I was going to, I was going to jokingly say, I won't do the, the, the spontaneous um, self-deprecating um, answer, which is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I will share is that, my life has really been about empowering people, claiming claiming our power in constructive ways, wow. because we all have power. Yeah. And it's something that many of us have not been raised to really appreciate. And so that so blending being aware of our power and being aware of how we use or abuse our power, I think is probably at the essence of what I would like my legacy to be and that, and, and then blend and then using that in conjunction with compassion. So, which is part of how we use our power. So Mm -hmm. passion and compassion. So passion being the power and how we use it to support ourselves or not and hurt ourselves and how we apply it and share it with others constructively or destructively. So the awareness of that and conscious 
constructive choices around our use of our power in conjunction with being compassionate. So in, in other words, not just being aware here in our heads or in our bodies, but uh, and also being aware in our hearts and in our souls so that we really are genuinely, authentically connecting to other people, sharing and celebrating and and you know and being fully alive that that that's what i've always wanted for myself and for everybody else and that's what i focus on in my practice and and it leads to such interesting unique paths on the journey that i support each and every person i have in my practice it's been richly rewarding i you know i feel incredibly blessed to have had the opportunity to to become a naturopathic doctor with this focus on body-centered or somatic counseling um, and to be part of the world, a part of, part of the human nature, part of the human species, part of nature. I mean, it's like each day is precious. Each day is a gift. And look at us. I mean, I feel so blessed to have you in my life and that we reconnected and, you know, we have so much to be grateful for and so much to offer the rest of the world, really and truly. And we need to keep doing that and valuing the power we have to take care of ourselves, to heal ourselves, to be healthy, and to take care of others and to support them on their healing journeys and their journeys of well-being. Thank you so much, um, Michelle, Dr. Meyer. It's been a delight listening to you this morning. and and. Definitely sometime over the summer, you must come and see my garden. And, Absolutely. Uh, and and pluck things from it, whether I'm allowed to or not. Or whether oh, you'll be allowed to. Yes, yes, you'll <laughs> be allowed. I'll share whatever's I, in my garden with you. <laughs> and, you know, my my um, garden out front, I redesigned it as a healing garden. So okay. I have, I in the morning, I would go off walk in the healing garden which has beautiful colors and beautiful flowers and a nice soft path take your shoes off and walk in the garden to me that's a blessing every morning to be able to do and uh you know over the years since i've moved to rural canada um canada i've overcome my phobia of bugs (laughs) i mean great I used to be, you know, really, really deathly afraid of spiders. If if I saw one in the house, I'd move out. Um, but I'm learning to coexist with with the little insects around my property. They are essential, Angelina. Oh, they I know, are. I know. They'll be around a lot longer than we will be, and they were here a lot longer before us. And without them, we do not, we cannot survive. Period. <laughs> I tell you what I commit to when I come out to visit you, we can look at the possibility of creating a labyrinth. Oh, that would be a really fun thing to do. So, yeah, no, I look forward to it. And you know where we are. So, yes, we're definitely welcome. I remember the last time you came, you you opened up uh, some of the avocados I had in on the counter and made some guacamole you know I mean I love people that see my kitchen as their kitchen you know well I'll be seeing your garden as my garden and absolutely I'll be plucking the weeds and we'll be eating those too we'll get the lamb sporters going and the (laughs) 
and the chick, chick, chicory. And I'm just thinking of what other things we'll be finding in there that we can use. Oh, there'll be bunches of stuff. Well, no, maybe I, we I, can I, look in the, um, I mean, our neighbor was an old biologist at, that passed away. And he often promised me to take me into our joint forest to forage for mushrooms. Oh, so yeah. I could pick the right ones. But yeah. Right. Unfortunately, he passed before he was able to do. Maybe we can look for mushrooms in the forest. Look for some mushrooms too. Oh, there's just way too many possibilities here. Yes, way yes. too many. So yeah, that would be just wonderful. Yeah, and maybe sometime I'll just I'll I'll engage some of your your folks and some of my folks in an urban foraging uh, hike. You know, wander through the city where we can pluck yeah. things from like crab apple trees and you name it. We'll. We'll take the linden flowers and we'll do, they're just, there's so much abundance here that isn't being used. It's yeah. shrimp, really. Well, the one thing I don't take from the city is dandelion. Um, I know dandelion is really um, beneficial and healthy, but in the city, because they spray everything, I don't take they anything. anymore. They don't, no, no. Oh, have they stopped? They've stopped for years now. Really? Anything they can use is iron. Yeah. Well, the individual spray. properties still spray. Oh, some people might. Yeah. Banning yeah. these things too, bit uh, by bit. Yeah. So anyway, we've yeah. gone lo- well over the hour and I want to wrap up. And um, I just want to, and just to say that this recording is done on unceded Algonquin territory. Um, and, you know, I always like to do a little land acknowledgement and, let people be aware that we are on indigenous territories. Right. And, and take you know, we it. need to be mindful of that uh, all the time. Yes. So thank you, Michelle, for this okay, wonderful Michelle, conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Been a delight. Absolute delight. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day and uh, look forward to seeing you for a visit sometime. Ditto. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Yeah.